0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Making the land an everlasting waste. So Daniel had been directed to this passage and concluded from it that the years of captivity were coming to an end. The third thing that Daniel did is that after Daniel had made this discovery, he prayed. He prayed for everything the Bible had assured him would happen. So what he did was, he got the understanding from the Lord, and that's where his prayers went. Now this is important, and because of that, I want us to look a little more specifically at Daniel's example of prayer, because it's critical for you and I today. His prayer is definitely worth study. In fact, John Calvin said that it is an example, a guide, and a common form for prayer for the whole church. There are three key things that Daniel did here that are important to you and I this morning. Number one, a confession. Notice Daniel 9, verses 4 to 10. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our priests, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. You see, confession helps to get the proper perspective of where we went wrong. We see from God's point of view. And that's why it's important to confess. Now, let's go further. Number two, it's because of sin, judgment has come. Look at verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servants of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So Daniel confesses the sin then acknowledges it, that it's the reason for their circumstances. So you see how Daniel's mind is developing through this. He's making confession, he's getting God's perspective, and he understands that the reason for where they are is because of of what they've done. And then number three, we have a plea for mercy. Verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourselves, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins... And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, notice, for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now let me just pause here for a second. You notice what verse 17 says. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. You see, his appeal is not for his own needs or his own wants. His appeal is for God's glory, for your sake. Now that's critical not to miss this because what do we say all the time? Why do we exist? For God's glory. Daniel understood the reality that all of this was about God and not him. No matter how difficult the situation, no matter where he is in life, his focus was that God would get the glory. So in his prayer for reconciliation, for mercy, for forgiveness, for getting back on track with God, he prays that it is for your own sake, God. Not for mine. You understand what that does to your own heart. You understand how that helps you to pray accurately and for the right reason. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. These are the three necessary marks of true prayer acknowledgement of sin and of the fact that sin always brings judgment, and a plea for God's mercy. There is no other way we can approach God except as sinners seeking grace. But there's one more thing here that I think is vital, that tells us an immense amount about Daniel. When Daniel prayed for his people, confessing the sin that God called to punish them by their deportation, he didn't distinguish himself from the people. But he identified with the people. Notice what he said, verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. And on and on and on he goes. When we confess sin... Or when we have a problem, we tend to point out the faults of someone else. Especially if someone has wronged you. Especially if someone has done something that's really hurt you. Our prayers are more like, God, straighten them out. God, look what they did to me. Take care of them. But do you see what Daniel did? He said, God, we have sinned. In the Bible, there is no known mention of any sin about Daniel. But he was a sinner because he was born of woman. Everyone born since Adam and Eve are born with a sin nature. So rather than Daniel taking out Israel and asking God to help them, he acknowledges his own sin. Now just imagine you praying for a situation where someone has wronged you. And you go to God and say, "Lord, I'm a sinner too. I'm weak just like they are. Lord, we have sinned. But God, please take care of the situation." Can you understand what that does to your own heart and mind? Can you imagine how that helps you to handle that person? No longer as an adversary, but one of grace and mercy? Lord, they may have wronged me, but I'm a sinner too. I get it. So Lord, help us work it out. And I think that is something so critical about Daniel's heart that is often missed in the scriptures here. He identified with the people he was praying for as a sinner. and He called upon God from a heart that was absolutely surrendered let me tell you, those are the prayers that God honors. Because he's honoring a heart of surrender, not a heart of bitterness. Now, that's tough for us to do in the flesh, isn't it? That's hard for us because of our humanness. But again, when you understand the purpose and reason that you exist, and when you understand that living for God is all that matters... You're able to put the proper perspective on your own life. You're not as squeaky clean as everyone else. So you just roll in with them and ask God to meet the situation. He said, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear, and Lord, act. But he did it with the word of God instructing him and with the grace of God in his heart. That's true ministry. Well, we come now to the prophecy. The revelation of God given to Daniel is what we saw commentators referring to as the backbone of prophecy. And it is this prophecy that provides the framework that so many other prophecies are built upon and lined up with. So let's look at Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophets, to to anoint a most holy place, known therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in in, in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree ends and pours out on the desolator. So let's try to unpack this, because there is some confusing things here, and try to stay with me. If you're not a a studier of prophecy, it can become very confusing, but but hang with us because there are some things we want to clear up at the beginning. Because right at the start, there's a little bit of confusion when it talks about 70 weeks. In Hebrew, the word is actually seven or perhaps better, more accurately translated, a group of seven something. Now, it could mean a week since a week has seven days. But it does not actually mean a week. In in this case, nearly every Author or commentary acknowledges that it must be years. Because if it was literal weeks, uh, when you look at that period of time, nothing happened in that particular time if it were weeks. So if weeks of years are involved, then the time period embraces the years from the giving out of the decree to rebuilding Jerusalem to the days of Jesus Christ. Seventy weeks of years is 490 years which Gabriel divided into three uh, sub-periods. Seven weeks of years, that's 49 years. 62 weeks of years, that's 433 years. And a final period of weeks of years, that's seven years. In one way or another, six things are to be fitted into this period according to verse 24. Look at verse 24 again. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So what are the six things? Transgression is to be finished. An end is to be made of sin. An atonement for wickedness is to be made. Everlasting righteousness is to be brought in the vision and prophecy are to be sealed up, and the most holy is to be anointed. So these are things that all have to happen during that period. Now, the the problem is that there were a number of decrees having to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And most people recognize that between one of these decrees and the appearance of the anointed one, that is the Messiah, there should be 483 years. That is 7 plus 62, or 69 times 7, okay? Don't worry about the math. I've done it. It's okay. But just stay with me. But because there are different points to begin, there are also different ways of arriving at the appropriate year connected to the lifetime of Jesus Christ. So let me give you those those three here. Number one, the most obvious one from these uh, the 483 years could start is the decree issued by Cyrus recorded in 2nd Chronicles 36 verse 23 and Ezra 1 verse 24. So if you're keeping notes to research this, I'll give them to you again. 2nd Chronicles 63 and Ezra 1 2 through 4. Now this may be a number of years too early. Besides both biblical ver- uh, versions of the decree mention only the reconstruction of the Jerusalem temple and not the rebuilding of the whole city, which is what the original is talking about. The second possibility is the decree issued by Artaxerxes uh, in the seventh year reign according to Ezra 7, 12 through 26. This decree was issued in 457 B.C. If we move forward 49 years from that point, we come to 408 B.C., by which time the walls, the streets, the moats around the city were completed. Then, moving on 433 more years, we come to A.D. 27. Now, this seems to be a bit early for the time of Christ's ministry, but it probably is accurate if we are to understand Gabriel's wording as referring to the start of Christ's ministry. The ministry was three years long, so this would be given Christ's death around AD 30. All right, you confused yet? Hang in there. The third possibility is the decree recorded by Nehemiah in chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. This occurred in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which is therefore 13 years after the early decree of Ezra. We just saw number 2. So calculating from this point, it brings us to the year A.D. 39 or 40, and this seems too late. But it was a popular identification of the time years ago, and it was defended by adjusting the years of the calendar to a so-called prophetic calendar of 360 days. Now, by whatever set of calculations one makes, the point is, that by the end of the 69 weeks of years, the great work of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for sin should be completed. And we know that that time has come. But here's a key. What about the last seven weeks? Or the last week, the last seven years? What of the final seven years of 490 years? Well, this has been a puzzle for almost everyone, due to the fact that if you simply add the seven years onto the end, you arrive at AD 38 and nothing of significance happened. So, what we have here is a clear indication of a break in the fulfillment of the prophecy. The fulfillment of the iniquity of the Jewish prophecy is suspended while the gospel is preached to the Gentiles. And the full number of the church is brought in, which encompasses people from all walks of life, races, and nations. And that's the period we're living in today. Because of Israel's rejection, the gospel was opened up to all men. And therefore, we are in that interruption. Now remember, prophecy is for the Jews. And so we have this interruption while the church is brought in. And then after the number of the church are fully gathered, the prophecy will begin to unfold once more with the final week of acute suffering and persecution for the Jewish nation. In this view, the last week of Daniel would coincide with a seven year period of great tribulation, mentioned obviously in Revelation and in other passages. And so this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I believe the church will be taken out at the beginning of the tribulation. Because prophecy is for Israel. And the whole focus of the tribulation period is now on the Jews. The witnesses, 144,000, are all Jews. And that is where the focus is. So I believe the church will be raptured at that point. All who are still alive will go to be with the Lord. And during that period, there'll be many things taking place in heaven, such as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and uh, being clothed, and then coming back with the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. So it's a fascinating time that awaits you and I in the future. Now, the question has always arisen, will, will any Gentiles be saved during the tribulation? Because we know that if the church is taken out and there's going to be a lie that people are going to believe, is it possible? Well, I don't know. That's a tough one. But I do know in the Old Testament, dealing with Jews, that there were many Gentiles who were saved. And we could list many of them. Rahab the harlot, for one, and many others. So I'm sure it's possible. But who wants to take that chance? Wouldn't you want to know today and be secure of your eternal future? The church is encompassing all Gentiles, all Jews, anyone who would come to Christ based on what he has done. And I think this is also supported by Jesus' words in reference to the abomination that causes desolation. It's mentioned in Daniel 9.27, in Daniel 11.31, and in Daniel 12.11 as something not happening immediately, but experienced at the end. So it gives credence to the fact that there is this pause for however long it takes for the entire church to be brought in. Jesus said in Matthew 24 verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And Matthew being written to the Jews and this being spoken to the Jews, remember He's talking about what's ahead for the Jewish nation. So it begs the question, what about us? What about us? You and I need to understand that God has a timetable. In world history, he is in control of his own time. And he is working carefully recording or according to the plan he has set up. This does not mean that we are always able to understand his timetable or see his plan. There are many things in Scripture about prophecy that we just simply can't understand, and greater minds than ours are confused by some of it. In fact, most people will ignore it altogether because they find it cumbersome and too hard to understand. But we know that he is unfolding his timetable and that one day Jesus Christ will come again to take his own, and to judge all those who rebel. Today is a day of God's mercy, but it is not an endless day. The time for turning to Jesus in faith and obedience is limited. The reality is that there doesn't have to be any other fulfillment of any other scripture prophecy before Christ comes for us. The call for us to go to him could be today could be tomorrow, 100 years, we don't know. But there's a reason we don't know. Because God is working in the hearts and lives of men to draw them to him. And the, you know what the great part about that is? He uses you and I to do it. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit saves you, sets you apart, and dwells you with the Holy Spirit, and then instructs you to minister for God's glory. Although God works according to his own timetable without deviation, he nevertheless works through you and I. And that's what we saw when we considered Daniel's prayer of confession, which he prayed in light of God's word that the captivity of the people would last for only three more years. And this is another way of saying that what we do for God in obedience to God counts. It counts. God wants to use you and I. He has planned to work through us. He has gifted us with abilities and understandings that the person next to us doesn't have. And I've said this before, every person, every born-again, blood-bought person has a ministry. Every one of us has a calling on our lives. How many of us take the time to get into Scripture and find that calling? Sometimes we have to go through deep water to be drawn to God to see it. I mean, I've I've had incredible opportunities down at the James to talk to people I never wouldn't have known. Nurses who come in, oh, what do you do? You really want to know? You got an hour? I'm one of the people that God loves. Really? Yeah. And be able to share. Probably never see him again. All of us, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, God has a call on your life. And I think one of the most spectacular things about Daniel is he was so surrendered to his God. I mean, he was taken captive. He was thrown into a situation where he had to work for an evil king. And he did it with all the strength and ability he could. He ministered to everyone around him. And when put in a difficult position and went to God, confessing sins, put himself in the same, but he wasn't better than anyone else. He was a sinner like everyone else. His heart was surrendered. God got the glory. And God gave him words that you and I are still benefiting from today. That's the power of the gospel. Now, you and I aren't going to be prophets. We're not going to write scripture. That's all done. But I'm telling you something. You are writing scripture every day by your life. Not new revelation. You are writing what's on your heart from God. The very things that you talk to, the way you treat people, the way you love people in spite of it, you are writing on the tables of their heart. And you have an immense ability And, you know, I'll even call it an immense talent. How many of you feel talented this morning? You have a God-given talent for the calling that he has given you. And imagine a whole church seeking their individual talent that God can use and collectively representing him. Can you imagine the power of that church? We sit here this morning on the dawn of 2018. Might be our last year. Who knows? But what will you do tomorrow for Christ? What will you do to allow the Spirit of God to direct you and to use you to touch and mold other people's lives? He used Daniel in an immense way. This is another way of saying that what you do counts. You may not know how it counts, The people that I've been able to talk to down there, I may never see again. I will never know what happens. But maybe one day when I get to heaven and I see them, we'll hear about it. God is using you right where you are. And I know some of you have been through some very difficult things, and you've come out the other side, and you've looked back. That's what God was doing. Now I understand. We don't always know. But we can rest assured that like Daniel, God is using you very particularly to touch the lives of other people. Are your words, your actions, leading another to find Jesus? Is your life causing them to seek repentance? God wants to use you. The question is, are we willing to give him our lives? And Father, we thank you this morning for this amazing example of Daniel. Lord, prophecy is confusing, and I know just rushing through some of that, it's hard to to follow. But the reality is, we have already seen so much of Daniel's predictions come to pass. We know from the scriptures what he has done. And therefore we have confidence of what is yet to come. And Lord, one thing we know as Christians is that you loved us with a cross. You loved us so much that your son came, took on the form of a man, and gave his life up that we might not have to die. And Lord, we know that going forward, He gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us if we're willing to surrender. And so I pray this morning, as we begin this new year, this cold, frigid day, that we will leave here with an attitude of surrender and a desire to be what You've called us to be. And may we, together as a church, rejoice. And praise you in advance for what you're going to do through us. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning who as yet does not know you as Savior. They've heard this. They've heard it before. But they're confused. It's, it's hard. May they come to us. That we might show them through your word. Through your scripture. What you want to do in the hearts and lives of each one of us. And we'll thank you in advance. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless.